0: Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the topics you're talking about and debating in football. i mean, McGarry and with me as always is transfer guru Duncan Castles and in the words of someone else who once said it, have we got news for you. Manchester City, Manchester United, Liverpool, Napoli, Lille, oh the list goes on and on uh, in today's podcast. We're going to start however in the beautiful city of Naples in Italy where um, Duncan we have the trans- classic transfer merry-go-round situation. Where a player being sold allows the club to negotiate and indeed invest in players coming in, and a player, of course, uh, who you spoke about, a striker from Lille, who had been interesting both Liverpool and others, but appears to have settled on a move to Napoli.
1: Yeah, this is Victor Osimhen, um, young Nigerian striker at Lille, who has been uh, scoring. Um, at a great rate in the French division and told me they were stopped by COVID. Um, and has that kind of a combination of characteristics that's attracted him to top teams in Europe in uh, speed and ability to lead the line by himself, um, as well, of course, as, as scoring goals in, in great numbers He's a former uh, Golden Boot winner at the World Youth Cup. We told you that um, Leo were looking for 80 million euros for the player in the summers market. Um, They have almost got that. I'm told that their uh, uh, chief um, recruitment specialist, uh, Luis Campos, flew to Italy this week to um, iron out the final details on a transfer to Napoli. Um, A fee has been agreed at 70 million euros guaranteed and 10 million euros of performance-related bonuses personal terms already agreed for some time between Napoli and Asimhen. Um So that deal um, is with the lawyers at, at present, and I'm told is expected to go through in the next couple of days, which is a very significant move on, on Napoli's part. It's a big transfer fee, obviously, in a, in a market affected by the COVID pandemic, um, and it has ramifications for what happened elsewhere. Um, we told you in the podcast a long time ago that uh, Gennaro Gattuso had been informed that his um, star player, uh, star defender Kaladu Koulibaly would be sold this summer. Um, we also told you that Koulibaly had, um, had told friends that uh, he thought the most likely destination for him to go to would be Manchester City. Um, obviously, uh, Napoli spending 80 million euros on a striker has to be funded from somewhere, and the information I have from uh, the Italian end is that that funding is intended to come from Koulibaly's sale. So that should help um, accelerate the process of of his move, um, most likely to the Premier League very much wanted by Manchester City. They have been um, balking at the transfer fee. Napoli are asking for the player with numbers around 70-75 million euros being looked for by um, Aurelio De De Laurentiis, uh, the Napoli owner and chairman. Um, In addition to this, Napoli have been working on a replacement for Koulibaly and that's also a player from Lille. Gabriel, their centre-back, uh, young, uh, 22-year-old Brazilian centre-back who's um, very good at bringing the ball out of defence as well as having strong physical characteristics as a as a centre-back. He is uh, wanted by Everton, has been for some time. Everton, I'm told, remain interested. There's also um, interest from Internazionale in Gabriel. Um, But the best offer on the table to date, I'm told, from the Lille end is Napoli's, although they have not agreed that fee. Interesting additional bit of information on this is that Manchester United have asked to be kept informed of discussions over Gabriel. They haven't made an offer. Um, They have not stated an intention that they want to buy the player. Um, But they have expressed their interest in Gabriel. And this is very much a way Manchester United have operated in the transfer market in recent years. They like to have multiple targets. Um, They like to do the groundwork on deals and find out how much uh, a player's salary and uh, transfer fee costs would be. And they quite often contact clubs and and ask to be kept informed um, if they are going to sell a player. Um, It it also reflects the the slow decision-making process that a lot of people in in European football talk about when discussing Manchester United's um, movements in the transfer market. But uh, an interesting um, move by them, given that we now see Ula Gunnar Solskjaer thinking about improving his defence and looking for a left-sided centre-back and Gabriel very much fits that. He's left-footed, um, obviously can play on the left side of the defence. And one of the things I'm, I'm told Manchester United are looking to improve if they do buy a new centre-back is the distribution of of the ball from defensive areas. Um, and Gabriel is someone who is very good in that sense, good in building the play and, and bringing the ball forward. So I, th- I think the, um, the consideration here would be from Solskjaer, you, you add Gabriel to um, Harry Maguire, uh, two centre-backs who are comfortable bringing the ball out of defence and building the play, which is something that Solskjaer has focused more on the the deeper into his uh, Manchester United managerial career he's gone.
0: For some of our listeners, Duncan, who aren't as familiar with the way the transfer market works uh, that many of our listeners are, uh, we hope, because you've been with us a long time and you hear us talking about it. This is a bit like uh, when you try to buy a house, isn't it? You put a note of interest in and you ask the estate agent, please let me know if you've got a bid from someone else so I can then consider uh, what the property is worth, in this case, a centre-back and not a house. And um, I can then decide whether or not I want to pursue or get involved in that auction. Now, the selling club, naturally, is going to benefit from that scenario. So for Manchester United... And they're not the only club who do things this way. We have to, you know, flag that up. But for to, to do that rather than to go ahead and try and sort of deal with the player's agent first and then go to the club and ask for the, the fee that they want, kind of puts them at a disadvantage really in terms of if their interest is serious, getting the player, because clearly it creates an auction situation and uh, They would have. They are already behind the race, as it were, because other clubs have already made bids and/or spoken to the players' representatives.
1: It it reflects the corporate structure of Manchester United, in that they do not have a director of football, and and we'll probably talk a little bit later about that resurgent story that they're again looking for a director of football. to improve the recruitment and to prove the organization of the club, but they don't have one. They have um, Matt Judge who is charged with uh, negotiating contracts and talking to agents and um, doing the kind of information on the financial side of deals for the club. Um, other people make the footballing decisions. Um, and ultimately all of these things goes through Ed Woodward and through the Glazers before being, uh, approval being granted to do deals so it's it's an inefficient way of working in that you have a person who is a front man for the club on the negotiation basis who doesn't have the authority to make final decisions himself so the way it's d- described to me from people who who deal with Manchester United is they they have these conversations and, and they're like information gathering exercises and information exchange exercises, but there's not the capacity to get deals um, aggressively advanced during those conversations. They always have to wait for um, the go-ahead from other individuals before deals happen. And that's that's the path that Manchester United have chosen to go down. And, it, and as I say, I think it reflects the way the Glazers want to keep Control over the purse strings and the way Ed Woodward wants to keep a degree of control over um, recruitment decisions at the club, um, they will argue that it has become effective, and they will argue that the the you know the the Solskjaer cultural reboot and the the recent transfer business demonstrates that they're they're headed in the right direction and the, and their working practices are good working practices. What I can say is a lot of people in football are not convinced. That, those are the, that is the best way to work when it comes to doing transfer
0: deals. No coincidence, really, that the two biggest deals um, of recent times in Manchester United have been both from fellow Premier League clubs, uh, easy negotiations in the sense that everyone speaks English. Both English players, uh, Juan Bissaka and Harry Maguire, £130 million spent between the two But easier deals to do than deals which are complicated uh, by language, by currency, uh, by the fact that um, no one at Manchester United, okay, they can hire a translator, but it's not the same as having someone in your team who actually is multilingual. Um, And I have seen this happen so many times in transfer deals where it falls down because of a lack of communication or a misunderstanding in communication. Not the case, perhaps, Duncan, in uh, Manchester City's pursuit of a winger. Not necessarily to replace directly Leroy Zani, who uh, we know has gone to Bayern Munich, but perhaps someone who might sort of fit the piece of the jigsaw left by the absence of Zani and David Silva. Yeah, just uh, on, on that
1: Manchester United thing, we, we do have to mention the other big deal, which was Bruno Fernandes. And uh, obviously, that again is representative of the complications you're talking about. I mean, that was a transfer saga, and one that we um, went through in great detail on the on the transfer window podcast, and talked about the the misinformation that Manchester United gathered, and a refusal to go beyond a certain price, and a misunderstanding of the of the process involved, um, and. It, it took a long time to resolve and it, and it ended up costing Manchester United more money than they, they said they were going to involve in the deal. So yeah, I, I think there is an issue there. Um, and, and the contrast with a club like Manchester City who have Chiqui um in charge of, of these transfer deals, uh, who's given a lot of autonomy by Manchester City in terms of here is your budget Um, obviously substantial budgets because it's Manchester City but we trust you in collaboration with the coach to get us the right players we've hired you to be the expert on recruitment we hired you because of your track record in recruitment at other clubs you're the front man you get these deals in place um, and you get us the right players at the best prices and Bergeristan's contact list is, is huge um, his ability to, uh, to find the right players is well demonstrated. I'm not saying he doesn't make errors. There are substantial errors in there. But across the board, um, has structured a, a, a very good team for Manchester City. And this move for um, Ferran Torres of Valencia is, I think, a typical Bergiristan move. He's uh, is a 20-year-old player who will be out of contract in a year's time. Valencia are in dire financial straits, and I, I was told by um, one source that they would be prepared basically to sell anyone at the club this summer for the right price. Ferran Torres is one they don't want to sell, ironically, at, uh, at the kind of money that you'd expect for a player with, with one year of contract left. But City are, are taking advantage of that situation. They have put personal terms in place with the player. They've convinced him that City is the the right place to go to and now they're trying to negotiate the fee down with Valencia knowing that they're in financial difficulties and hopeful that they can get a bargain there. Um, Not, I think, a like-for-like replacement for Zani. He's a different kind of winger. Um, He prefers to play off the right side for a start. He's more of a uh, tight area, um, beating a man one-on-one um, player than someone who uses his pace, outright pace, to uh, to uh, destroy and uh, open up spaces and defences. So I don't think he will resolve that issue Manchester City have had of missing Zani this season and not having that player who can break attacks down with his pace. Um, he may um, be more suited to Guardiola's system. Playing one of the inside midfield roles, so in the position that Bernardo Silva is often filled, or Kevin De Bruyne, or David Silva, who is of course is leaving the club this summer. But um, City very much in the box seat in terms of doing that deal, in that they have the ascent of the player, and. It will be relatively inexpensive compared to other players that have looked for as additions at wingers. For example, Adama Traori, who, as we told you in the podcast some time ago, Wolves uh, value at over 100 million euros um, and will
0: be a very difficult deal for anyone to do in this transfer window. It's an interesting window for City, um, Duncan, on the basis that uh, one, they're not Premier League champions. Uh, secondly, uh, they have had the threat of the Champions League ban removed. Therefore, recruiting players theoretically should be easier for them. But but uh, they have lost or are losing. Um, David Silva, Rosani, they still haven't properly replaced. François Company, uh, and we've talked a lot on the pod about... Uh, Need four central defenders. Indeed, we um, reported in the last one that Pep Guardiola wants two new centre backs. Seems to me like we're going to have a a window for City where they will release cash in order to rebuild and augment a strong squad. Uh, And but building in the right areas is going to be key because um, despite um, all of the money that's been spent on the most expensive squad ever assembled, they still have weaknesses, which we have seen in recent weeks uh, to be, you know, really quite fundamental.
1: Yeah, it's it's a big window for Manchester City. It's a big window for Pep Guardiola. Guardiola has not been happy with recruitment um, over the last two summers. Um, very unhappy that he wasn't given centre backs last season um that as you say is a priority and and they want two center backs to come in this summer and koulibaly as we talked about earlier in the podcast is a, an indicator of the level of players are prepared to go to to uh, to improve the squad if you go for kaladu Kulabai is one of your options and and the other options which we mentioned in the recent podcast are not cheap ones and are not low level either um, you're going top of the market um established centre-back has proven himself uh, in Serie A and proven himself in Champions League um, and had a very high price tag um, even before Napoli decided to, to sell him this summer. And yeah, they're, they're obviously you have that replacement for David Silva, you have questions at full-back. Um, they are trying to get Aguero on a new extended contract, which will come at a substantial price in terms of salary and signing on fee. But they have um, effectively beaten financial fair play with this cast decision. Um, They've been found guilty of breaching financial fair play regulations twice um, during the Abu Dhabi era. And they have uh, not been banned from the competition on either occasion. And there's a general response within football that um, FFP has effectively done. Um, as a result of that cast decision. Whether that proves to be the case or not, we will see, but that is the perception of many significant people um, involved in the market and involved in trying to win that Champions League. And um, it's a green light, essentially, to Manchester City to go and spend aggressively again in this window, and that is the intention.
0: Interesting to see um, a rather uh, ratty Pep Guardiola, what could we say? A bit annoyed um, by a few things uh, this last week. First of all, uh, it was um, the uh, seemingly uh, thinly veiled accusation that Arsenal do not reserve, deserve his respect off the pitch because of their position regarding... Uh, writing to UEFA and CAS to uh, ask that the sentence uh, in terms of the European ban was upheld, along with seven other Premier League clubs. Um, And then also uh, in his very short shrift um, dismissal of Jordan Henderson being made Football Writers Association Player of the Year because, I think in his words, Liverpool players always get Player of the Year not Manchester City players, he does seem a bit riled, Duncan. And you know, for someone who is in a position that he's in, best-paid manager in the world, um, massive budget at his disposal, still in the Champions League, and uh, has the opportunity to strengthen his squad, it just—I don't know—he just seems to me to be someone who's a bit more unhappy than perhaps he should be.
1: We've seen this from Pep Guardiola before. He doesn't take criticism well. Um, that's he's used to having the best resources of uh, of any club in the competition he's involved in. You know, he, he had the best, arguably the most talented squad ever at Barcelona. Then went to Germany, where he had a massive advantage over over domestic competition, um, and was expected to win the Champions League and failed to do so then went to Manchester City, where he's given the most expensive squad in the history of the game. Um, he he is open about saying he needs the best footballers to to do his work well. You have to credit him with his honesty on that, but he, he doesn't take criticism well. He gets riled easily. Tetchy comments are not uncommon from Guardiola when he's not winning. I must say I have sympathy with him on the player of the year argument. Um, you know, Uh, if you look over the last 10 seasons of football writers and professional footballers association player of the years, only in one season has a Manchester City player won those titles. So Raheem Sterling won both last season. He is the only Manchester City player in the last 10 years to be named player of the year, either by his fellow footballers or by the media in England. Um, During that time, Manchester City have won four Premier League titles and 11 major trophies in England. Um, And the idea that they have only one player who is the best footballer, um, been named the best footballer during that time just clearly doesn't fit, especially when you consider that during that time frame, um, one of the football writers' titles for Player of the Year went to Scott Parker uh, in a season when West Ham United were relegated.
0: I think it's well known uh, amongst our listeners uh, and certainly us, Duncan, that there are not very many Manchester City fans in the media, whereas there are lots of Manchester United, West Ham United and Liverpool (laughs) fans in the media, uh, which may be something. I'm not accusing our fellow journalists of uh, being in any way uh, swayed by their own allegiance. However, the fact that David Silva has never won, Football of the Year seems to me to be a bit of an anomaly with regards to the awards ceremonies. Jurgen Klopp taking no uh, time to um, get himself out there uh, on the back of uh, Premier League success with an advert for a well-known German beer company uh, in which uh, he stars um, having a pint at a bar uh, where, where apparently there is um, a Liverpool game going on in the background uh, using his trademark smile and uh, and exuberance as well. And perhaps he will be a bit happier uh, after the disappointment of losing out on Timo Werner who signed for Chelsea instead of Liverpool despite his own personal investment in trying to get that transfer done. It's our information that Family Sports Group have relented somewhat and are willing to sign a striker uh, this summer uh, to augment Liverpool's squad. Of course, at the moment, they don't play with a recognised number nine. Um, Firmino continues to be the player who plays at the point of the three-man attack. And uh, one player who has come onto the radar, although it's no surprise that he's come onto the radar, but is probably destined for Italy rather than Merseyside is Wolves' Raul Jiménez. Duncan, this is a transfer which would be no surprise, except for the fact that Jiménez is going to cost a lot of money, and you have said this in the past, that Wolves are not prepared to do a deal on the cheap for a player that they paid almost £40 million for, and who has proven to be a very reliable, not just striker, but also someone who has a good record of assists and making goal chances.
1: Yeah, um, just in that Klopp advert, you have to say that the football team he's surrounded him with are far better than the people that make the adverts he's taking money from for for uh, pushing German <laughs> beer in England. Yeah, uh, the version beer is not
0: bad, though. It's not bad. The beer's is not bad. <laughs>
1: Jimenez, um, yes, uh, I can see why there uh, would be interest from Liverpool in the player um, because of the way he's performed for Wolves. There is a lot of competition there. He is first choice um, for Juventus uh, if they manage to dump Gonzalo Higuain in the the current marketplace um, and raise sufficient uh, revenue from transfers. One of the players that they're they're trying to sell and sell into England is Douglas Costa um, to be able to get Jimenez from Wolves and they want to put him in an attack alongside Cristiano Ronaldo and uh, Paulo Dybala, which would be... um, entertaining to watch for sure and frightening to defend against Um, but this will not be a cheap deal Um, Will's paid a lot of money for Raul Jimenez uh, to get him from Benfica, he is uh, paid a very good salary there they know his value, they're a tough club to buy players from Um, and I'm not sure uh, whether Fenway Sports Group are prepared to back Klopp in the manner which would be required financially to get Jimenez from Wolves. So um, while there is an interest there, an understandable interest there, it will be an interesting test of um, how much support FSG are prepared to give Klopp going into this next season um, to defend that Premier League title.
0: It's an interesting conundrum, this one, Duncan, because we have regularly praised Um, Liverpool's recruitment policy, as well as the mechanism of the way that they go about doing their deals. They identify targets way in advance. Uh, They then obviously do their homework, let's just say, with regards to the players' willingness to join Liverpool and uh, and negotiate a fee. And then it's as if by magic they've got the old uh, unveiling just ready there and then, and everyone's like, oh, look at that, Liverpool's a really good player. Um, So they're they're kind of, having missed out on Werner, they're a little bit late to the party with strikers um, for next season. Um, I've seen Jürgen Klopp talk in detail about needing to improve and there being room for improvement and kicking on, etc., but not uh, committing the, the club or himself to there being any massive amounts of spending. Now, in contrast, Manchester United's recruitment policy has been, well, let's just say mixed at best and scattergun at worst. And uh, yet again, the subject of a director of football has returned to the agenda. It's something that we've spoken about in depth uh, over the last 18 months, something our listeners and we obviously appreciate your comments and your questions and your debate. Uh, with us regarding this and and many of you, many, many of you have engaged with us on director of football at Manchester United. It seems, Duncan, um, that the same question is asked and the same answer is given and I know that both you and I share a similar experience in that we've spoken to people close to those who have had a conversation with Manchester United about the potential of becoming director of football or technical director at the club. And the answers have been very similar. And that is that um, there was no guarantee that the portfolio that they were going to be given with regards to the job also contained a mandate to sign the players that they recommended. Now, that's a massive difficulty because you're asking people to take responsibility for effectively something they don't have the control over. Yes, look, this is the third
1: consecutive summer window where Manchester United the director of football has been a topic of discussion. Um, the club has stated some time ago that it wanted to put a director of football in place. And, and yes, they've they briefed that they want to place it inside the framework of their recruitment system, which they think is great. And you see Edward Woodward, um, giving interviews, talking about how wonderful... Um, his analysts are and uh, and the reporting methods and and that the the recruitment has been professionalised and and it works well for the club and the idea has been to put someone in amongst that structure rather than have some specialist come in and and restructure, which many would argue is actually what the club require. they talked about director of football when Mourinho was was still there Mourinho proposed um, Luis Campos and uh, United decided they didn't even want to interview him once they got Mourinho out you have again this discussion about director of football for last summer conversations had with various people um, including I understand Paul Mitchell who um, recently left the Red Bull organisation to take over uh, that role at Monaco. Uh, previously worked at Tottenham um, and has a, a very and Southampton has a very uh, good reputation in England uh, for recruitment. Um, but nothing came of it. And yes, the the feedback was that in these conversations, when the question was asked, "What is my authority on transfers? Who gets the final say?" It was never granted to the people who were being interviewed, which made the job less attractive to them. Um, and you have to say the discussion about appointing a director of football should not be happening when the window is effectively open and in full swing. Um, if Manchester United were serious about improving the recruitment practices for this window, which is the most complicated window football's experienced? Um, since the system has been brought in. We just talked about Liverpool and decision-making over a striker. I I think a, a lot of the element there is clubs trying to work out what their competitors are going to do, how much money they have to play with, when fans are going to come back, how damaged their budgets are going to be, how many clubs are going to be stressed and having to sell players at cheap prices. That there's, there's a lot of calculation going on as to how is this market actually going to shape up, what are realistic prices to pay, therefore decision-making has been held off. And I can understand why FSG are, have been reluctant to, to pay the kind of fees they paid in previous summers in the context of that. But it's complicated, and everyone I speak to who's working in the market talks about how difficult it is. Now, if you want a director of football and you think that director of football is going to be an important part of recruitment, and you've got this window to deal with, that needs to be appointment made in advance um, and involved in the planning and, uh, and involved in helping you do deal with this window properly. The suspicion is that what Manchester United are doing here is what they've done for a couple of years is um, the director of football appointment is more about window dressing, it's more about having a name who will take responsibility, who will be a frontline, who will be a face, who is associated with recruitment and take the pressure away from Ed Woodward um, in that respect. So he is able to point to um, someone else when things go wrong. And uh, if things go right, be able to say, well, look at the great appointment I made and look how I've improved recruitment and and sent the club back on its track where they can uh, compete for the Premier League again. Um, another element also uh, is that they're waiting to see whether they're in the Champions League uh, for next season, because that makes a very substantial difference to their budget going forward. And we saw Ed Woodward writing again um, last week uh, for the programme notes for Manchester United's latest game, talking about the pandemic and the economic pressures it's placed upon the club and issues Um that make it difficult for them to navigate our way through this uncertain period. So there's, there's no coherent, structured message coming from Manchester United on, on this this topic. And and frankly, it's been that way for over two years now.
0: Strange enough, Duncan, it is ironic because um, having a, an experienced and professional and Uh, well-connected director of football is probably more essential than at any time uh, in the game right now. For all the reasons you've mentioned, it is the most difficult window that football clubs have faced, both in terms of finances and in terms of timings and in terms of effects because not only have the seasons overrun by more than six weeks, but you have a Champions League and Europa Cup uh, uh, Tournament, which will not be concluded until August, and then seasons resuming in September. And all the while, you have to be working in the market to strengthen your squad for next season, when a lot of the elite clubs especially will still be playing. And it just seems like false economy to not have someone in your organisation who has all of the skill sets needed to make sure that you're not left behind. Um, because working in this market, and I know how difficult it is because I'm working in the market myself as a consultant, um, is extremely different to past windows. Clubs don't have the money. They don't have access to liquidity and cash flow. They um, are struggling with regards to their ability to attract players, but also to dispose of players who are not necessarily essential to their full next season but are on you know relatively big contracts etc who in the past they've been able to get rid of quite easily so it is a very difficult working environment for everyone uh, with regards to the window and for club like manchester united to be dithering effectively with regards to how they approach it just you know it doesn't seem like you know the, the right way to go But Duncan, you've also um, looked at the way that Manchester United um, may or may not qualify for Champions League next season. And you've come up with something which is quite extraordinary. So, um, for one day only, tell us what's in your box, Pandora.
1: (laughs) Well, they're... Like, look, there's two things to talk about here, and, and one is in the context of what we've just been discussing in the recruitment and the, the kind of the story that Ed Woodward has sold about the recruitment's been great um, and we're we're on the right path. I mean, if you look at what they've done, they bought Wan Bissaka for top dollar, uh, highest price for a specialist fullback at the time. It's been a good signing. It's improved their defence. They overpaid substantially for Harry Maguire and are now considering. Um, another uh, centre back recruit. Again, top priced uh, centre back on the market in England. These are straightforward deals to do. They um, paid a reasonable fee for Dan James, who had an excellent start to the season, but has now fallen well down the pecking order. Um, So I I think they'll make a profit in that deal if they have to sell him on, um, if he doesn't continue to progress. But, you know, no... There's a question mark over whether that was a great piece of business for Manchester United uh, in terms of strengthening their squad, and I think it's no coincidence that they're looking for a right winger again and, and looking to spend very heavily on a right winger in this summer. Then they get Bruno Fernandes, which you cannot question in terms of effect it's had in the team, massive effect, great deal. But again, this is. Uh, European market, who is available, who could make a difference. Now, no one competing against them in that January window to buy the player, and they ended up paying essentially top price for them. So the idea it's all genius is, um, and it's all going smoothly is, is somewhat questionable in itself. Um, they are on course now, finally, to get that qualification place, having sort of scrambled through the game against West Ham United, hanging on or playing conservatively and, and taking a draw, knowing that they go into the last match against Leicester City only needing a draw to qualify, um, that was the target for the season, which is a you know a sign of where Manchester United have fallen in itself and would represent success. I think it has to be seen in the context of historically how many points um, they will have got if they manage to qualify for the Champions League if they win. Um, they'll get to 66 points, um, which would be the lowest total for a team qualifying direct to the Champions League um, in the history of the Premier League. Um, And the only other team who's got through to a direct um, group stage qualification is Manchester City in 2015-16. There have only been a couple of sides... Um since 2004 that have got to the Champions League with less than uh, 63 points and that's Everton you have to go all the way back to 2005 Everton 61 points and then previous year 2004 Liverpool on 60 points they didn't go straight to the, the group stages they had to go through qualification um If they get there with the draw, it will be 64 points that get them into the Champions League, which will be their worst ever Premier League points total. Same as the one David Moyes and Ryan Giggs got, um, which saw United finish seventh and they were sacked. So what that's telling you is that this Premier League has been pretty poor um, beneath Liverpool. Uh, Manchester City way off Liverpool. And the teams underneath have been losing far more games than they usually do. Um, and then there's just one other little um, oddity because actually we, won't, we probably won't know where everyone's going in Europe until those uh, Europa League tournaments and Champions League tournaments are concluded and, the, and the, the places are fully allocated. But it is possible that Manchester United could finish fourth in the Premier League on Sunday and still not get into the Champions League. Now, that would happen if Chelsea were to manage to overcome their heavy deficit against Bayern Munich and go on and win the Champions League and Wolves win the Europa League. And in those circumstances, um, Chelsea and Wolves would go direct into the Champions League. Uh, No country can have more than five teams in the Champions League, so the fourth place in the Premier League would go. And Manchester United, or whoever finished fourth, would drop down to having to play in the Europa League instead. So um, Sunday will be interesting. And uh, there might even be a few shocks down the line in in terms of who ends up going where um, and where they play next season.
0: Twists and turns, as we used to say, of Tommy Burns along the way (laughs) with regards to the last day of the season... We're going to briefly just visit uh, Spain now, where um, a bizarre combination of circumstances saw Deportivo La Coruña lose their place in the second tier of Spanish football when their game against Fuenlabrada was postponed due to the fact that the visiting team had had numerous cases of coronavirus diagnosed and confirmed before the match was due to take place, uh, meaning that the game could not be played on the same day that every other game was played. And again, um, this is something, Duncan, that we have spoken about with regards to a multiple infection in one particular squad and the effect that it could have. And also, uh, I think it's a warning sign to any sport um, regarding what can happen if even just one case goes undiagnosed and then in a very short space of time uh, you end up with multiple cases, meaning that a match cannot go ahead, having a huge impact on the integrity of the competition itself.
1: Yeah, I think what's happened in in La Liga is it's it's shown how... um, deceptive, the the kind of protective bubbles that have been thrown around football teams in in this restart era, you can see in the Premier League that the the players feel that that they're comfortable and they're protected because they're tested twice a week. And um, they haven't been getting many positive tests. Uh, They obviously act in a way in terms of celebrations, goal celebrations, interaction at training ground, interaction through the matches um, where they are ignoring guidelines on on social distancing, etc., because they're confident that they're safe. And, and that's understandable because you're tested and tested again, and the, the positives don't come through and you manage to play round after round of matches, you get accustomed to um, it working and you, and you believe things are okay but what happened in la liga 2 uh, over the weekend shows how rapidly what seems like a protected bubble can actually turn into a you know a danger a, a dangerous bubble because the players i think because of the, their confidence that they were protected end up transmitting covid amongst themselves very rapidly um the saturday before the the final round of fixtures um, of which were due on Monday, that the first case, um, first positive test came through at uh, Fuen La um, By the Monday, when they had already travelled to Galicia for the match and were in the, the team hotel, they um, were being notified by the, the La Liga testing laboratory that they had a possible eight positive new cases um, that day. Um, ultimately, when they went through two rounds of tests, they, they found there were six positive and two negative. But it spread um, to a great extent through the squad just in the space of two days. They'd already travelled to Carunya, so the, the city of Caruña is now um, complaining that, uh, that, that uh, Fu and Labrada shouldn't have come to the city. They, they've been forced to self-isolate in a Caruña hotel. Um, The ramifications for the league are huge in that this has happened at the worst possible time in that uh, final round of fixtures where you obviously it's the only time in football where you try and play all the games together so so teams don't have an advantage in knowing what their opposition have achieved in terms of trying to qualify uh, for promotion playoff places, win the division or avoid relegation. Deportivo, as it turns out, um, they had an opportunity to avoid relegation, but results on Monday went against them. Um, therefore, they go into that final game against Fuan Labrada whenever it's replayed, knowing they're already down. Fuan Labrada would now know, because of the other results, that they only need a draw to get into the promotion um, playoff places. Um, Therefore, they they now face a team who would have had everything on the line in terms of avoiding relegation and now know they're relegated. So uh, the other teams are protesting and um, you have Deportivo arguing that FUE and should be relegated in their place um, because they uh, did not take proper care over the COVID um, regulations and and brought the the disease into the, the city. And you have Elsha who um, are likely or or will lose their promotion playoff place to Fuenlabrada if the match is played, and Labrada get a draw or a win, saying that uh, they should take the promotion place. So the thing is deteriorating into legal action very rapidly. There are reports in Spain that uh, the president of La Liga, Javier Tabas, is considering is considering resigning his position over this matter. Um, and, and, and yeah, I think it's a warning to football uh, not to get carried away with the, the the protective measures that's put in place and assume they are going to work down the line. And I, if you go back to the podcast we did with um, a couple of leading epidemiologists talking about uh, the restart protocol and, and the dangers involved with it, this was exactly the kind of scenario they were discussing and saying it's a possibility is that once you get an infection coming from an external source into a camp it can spread and unfortunately it hasn't happened in this case because the match was postponed but if fuen la prada had played against deportivo you could have it transmitted to another team um, if you don't follow these protocols properly or if the protocols get defeated by an infection that manages to pass through um, the various tests that are being applied to players on on uh, on a bi-weekly basis.
0: On a personal note, I'm very sad to see the demise of Deportivo La Coruña, uh, one of my favourite cities and certainly La Riazo, one of my favourite stadiums in the world. Duncan, have you been to La Riazo? I haven't, no. Sensational, honestly. It's like um, mini version... Um, of the Messiah in terms of its intensity and uh, you know proximity to the pitch and the fervour of the fans, uh, wonderful place to go. Uh, great seafood as well, fun enough uh, being right on the coast. We will end today's uh, transfer window podcast with the Donkey Award, and indeed. There's nowhere else to go for the donkey today, given the announcement of the Football Writers Association and Player of the Year Award, which has gone to Liverpool captain Jordan Henderson. Uh, Apparently there are, and you've heard this joke before, uh, as yet undiscovered tribes in the Amazon Basin who knew that would be the outcome of this year's vote. But hey-ho, that's the way it is. We're going to do something a bit more alternative because that's how we roll for the donkey Player of the Year award. I'm just going to open the golden envelope and let you know that it's not necessarily going to be a player. It's going to be kind of like performance of the year or not performance of the year, just something significant. So, um, Duncan, we have three nominations for you to consider for your player stroke performance of the year 2019 2020. The first, um, and they're going to hate to be reminded of it, is Nottingham Forest's failure to make the Championship playoffs, having conceded what will now become, a, I think, a a general phrase in um, uh, sort of colloquial language. It will be the five-goal swing, which will be um, similar to you've been munsoned. So if you've been five-goal swinged, then it's something bad. And that's because they managed to lose 4-1 4-1 at home to Stoke City and also Swansea 1-4-1 which meant they dropped out having spent more than 200 days in the top six. Secondly, and you'll not be surprised to hear, has to be video assistant referees or Valerie as we like to call her uh, for having more influence on the outcome of Premier League results this season than any team or coach or kit man. Or anyone else. And third, but by no means last, Manchester City's legal team for pulling off possibly the result of the season, overturning a two year ban from Champions League football uh, by going to the uh, Court of Arbitration for Sport and getting that result um, against the odds. Duncan, I leave it to you to award your now. Infamous and famous golden statuette.
1: Well, I think we have to exclude poor Nottingham Forest from this because they're they're just not in the same scale as, as the other two. Uh, it's quite hard to to call between VAR and, and Manchester City's legal team. Um, VAR certainly had a bigger impact um, and a more malign impact on football than pretty much anything I've seen in my. 20 years covering the sport. Um, and, you know, we've talked about it in this podcast. We predicted it on this podcast. It's even surprised us with the extent of a disaster we've seen. Um, I, I Just, you know, the, the most recent incident, I thought it was quite interesting that when Paul Pogba decided to, to punch the ball away um, from, in his penalty area against West Ham United, that the referee, Paul Tierney, instead of giving a decision on the handball, immediately... Um, gave the VAR symbol. It's almost as though he deferred his decision making to VAR, which of course is specifically something that is never supposed to happen under VAR protocol. The referee is always supposed to make decision on the field, and then the VAR checks it. But just a year into um, Premier League VAR, and, and that's what we've got to in a in a key match at the end of the season.
0: The good news, Duncan, is that FIFA have overtaken uh, the control of VAR from IFAB as of. July first. So I'm sure that will bring lots more clarity.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, give it to give it to Gianni. He's give uh, it to he's, the man to he's the man to perfect the system.
0: You probably asked as Donald he's... Trump what he thinks.
1: Just as um, we managed to uh, have Sepp Blatter removed from FIFA president over over uh, partially over a World Cup going to Qatar, with Gianni coming in to clear things up. And where is the World Cup ending up? Uh, yes, Qatar. Um, <laughs> So, but Manchester City, I think maybe they have a. This could be the bigger impact still because of uh, uh, one uh, a very impressive victory to, to manage to turn that around and uh, and to get uh, their clients um, back into European top competition and um, and allow them to. Uh, to say that, uh, well, in in, uh, in Pep Guardiola's words, that they should be apologised to um, for uh, the pressure they were put under by other clubs in football. And, uh, and I think in terms of overall impact, um, potentially even bigger than VAR, because it, uh, it could well see the end of financial fair play. It could well see uh, the current UEFA president try and bring in a form of salary cap to attempt to restore um, or maintain competitive balance in football. Um, the ramifications are huge to the way that football is governed and to which, um, which teams will succeed going forward and to which um, owners will become involved going forward because it, it also sends a signal to other nation states that want to buy into football, such as Saudi Arabia, that um, it can be a prosperous thing to do.
0: Indeed, I'm beginning to think that maybe we need a secondary court, Duncan. So if we go to CAS, we should have another one after that, which would be the Court of Non Arbitration for Sport, where CAS could appeal against the decision that they lost in the first place. Javier <laughs> ab- ab- might be with you on that
1: one, but uh, maybe, his new job.
0: Ab- maybe his new job. Ad infinitum, <laughs> as we say. Uh, Uh, So, uh, that's it for today's Transfer Window Podcast. As you know, as regular listeners, you can now tune in and get us on YouTube, our YouTube channel. Just search Transfer Window Podcast. When you do, if you're going to use it and it's very easy, please subscribe. Uh, And then you will get notifications as well regarding um, new podcasts, which, of course, appear every week. Also, to join the debate and indeed continue the debate please use our social media channels and that is at transfer podcast on twitter instagram and facebook and personally to get in touch with duncan and i as you do and we enjoy engaging as you know it's at duncan castles and at garbo sj well it's been quite a week And indeed, we look forward to the final weekend of the English Premier League on Sunday. We will be back with you, of course, in the next few days. Until then, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.